0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device. I look forward to seeing you there. Today my guest is Hawaii's governor, David Ige, who, as of the air date of this episode, had roughly 80 days left in his second and final four-year term. I can imagine there are folks out there in podcast land who would have wanted me to ask a series of gotcha questions of Governor Ige. But as my loyal listeners know, that is not my style. I'm not CNN. Instead, I spent a couple weeks preparing for this conversation by doing two things. First, I went back and researched Governor Ige's time in public office, which goes all the way back, in fact, to high school. Governor Ige is a product of public education in Hawaii, starting with his run for his high school student body president in the mid-1970s. Eventually, in 1985, after getting his undergraduate degree in engineering and a graduate degree in business with an emphasis in the decision sciences, Mr. Ige was appointed to the Hawaii House of Representatives to fill a vacant seat by then-Governor George Ariyoshi. Subsequently, he served in the Hawaii State Senate from 1995 to 2014. On December 1, 2014, he became Hawaii's eighth governor since statehood in 1959. So what will you hear in my conversation with Governor Ige? Over the next 75 minutes, you will hear him talk about his passion for education and his involvement in a startup high school in his home community of Pearl City. How his degrees in engineering and business shaped his approach to appointing members of Hawaii's Board of Education. His thoughts on No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top and the Every Student Succeeds Act. The creation of his blueprint for public education. His strong feeling that education is at its most innovative when local communities are empowered to shape teaching and learning and school governance. How Hawaii as a result of the pandemic could become a model for learning over distances and remote work, and how he turned federal COVID education relief funds into an innovation grant program 31 teams are using to reimagine what school and what education could be. Governor Ige, by his own admission, is not a charismatic public speaker. But as I learned about five minutes into this conversation, he gets very animated and conversational when you get him one-on-one as we did on this day. And now here's my conversation with Hawaii's outgoing governor, David Ige.
1: Governor Ige, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Aloha. Thank you so much for inviting me, Josh.
0: So Governor, back when you were in high school, you ran for student body president, which by the way, listeners, is only part of the story from what I read. And your campaign actually stressed diversity and an end to bullying. So I wonder if this was the beginning of your journey into the political arena, though you might not have known it at the time, right? So (laughs) what drew you to the art of governing and the hurly-burly of politics?
1: I really didn't look at it as politics at that time. You know, it was as a high school student or as a student in general, I just enjoyed school and and looked forward to getting engaged in as much as I could. So I never really thought of myself as someone running for elective office, but I always found myself engaged to try and make the community better. Pearl City High School was just open. You know, my freshman year was the first year that the school existed. And it was an exciting time. If you think about, we had the opportunity to define our name. We wrote the alma mater. We created the school colors. We started traditions. So it was really the opportunity to be involved with something as a startup. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it in that context, and it was exciting. You know, we w- wrote the first student constitution uh, wow. at the Pearl City High School for student government. You know, I was involved in news writing and page one editor, and I was doing photography, you know, taking photos of different things happening. I was in the band and student government. It was a very fun time. It was a once in a lifetime experience in the sense that, you know, a school only starts once. Once, yeah. It's amazing to me. We are coming up at the 50th anniversary of the school's existence. And I just can't believe that it's been 50 years since the school started. Wow, that's such a great story. I mean, I love the idea of
0: seeing it as a startup. And what an exciting time that must have been. And so it sounds like you are kind of tracking towards some sort of 50th celebration. Is that going to happen?
1: Yes, we are. We're planning the 50th anniversary of the school opening. And, you know, we've had some delays because of COVID and that certainly has impacted. But we finally are going to have an event because I think it's an important milestone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Governor, when did your interest, which clearly turned into a passion for education, begin? And in what ways did your degree in engineering and later your graduate degree in business, which, by the way, had an emphasis on decision sciences, which is like that really caught my eye. So in what ways did that influence your sense of the purpose of this thing that we call school?
1: You know, I'm a proud graduate of the public school system here in Hawaii. You know, as I talked about, Pearl City High School was brand new, but I went to Pearl City Elementary School before that and Highlands Intermediate School and a proud graduate of the first class to complete four years at Pearl City High School. You know, I didn't plan to be in elective office. I first was appointed by Governor George Ariyoshi, and it wasn't something that I had planned to do, but I did see and have the opportunity to serve before I actually had to decide that I was going to campaign for office, which is a very, very different environment. Yeah. But I could see that I made a difference. You know, I had a different perspective. There were Two other engineers in the 76 member House of Representatives, I brought a different perspective. I did see immediately, as an elected official, as a member of the House of Representatives, that you're engaged in all issues that have statewide importance. And I could decide, you know, as I tried to decide how I would serve my community, I decided that. I didn't want to be superficially involved in a thousand different issues, you know, land use and planning and all of those things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be engaged deeply in a few issues that I really cared about and make significant difference rather than a superficial difference. So, you know, the things I cared the most about was education. And, you know, as a public school graduate, you know, I had wonderful teachers that I really feel are responsible for shaping my life. Mrs. Oura in kindergarten and uh, Miss Miyaki in first grade and Miss Wakayama in second grade and Miss Sangalang in third grade <laughs> and Mrs. Colby in fourth grade and Miss Hiroshige in fifth grade and Miss Ogawa in sixth grade. I can name you virtually all the teachers that I've had all the way through my public education. And then, you know, I was and early admit at Leeward Community College during my senior year in high school. And then I graduated in my bachelor's of science and my MBA from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So I am a complete product of the public education system. And i it's something that I just care about. I felt that the media is quick to criticize what doesn't work. And there's just not enough discussion or emphasis on what's working, and there is so much that is working in our public schools. I think we all understand that it could and should be better, but certainly there's more that's right than wrong in our public school system, and and I was committed to doing everything I could in a very focused way to give our young students the best opportunity to be successful. So from purpose to passion, that's it. You can draw a straight line. And
0: I love the way you can go back to the notion of your high school as a startup and that experiencing it in that context leads ultimately to a sense of what school could be. because you see how it came together and how you are all collaborating together to write the alma mater and to put all the Constitution together and all of that. So, yeah, that's awesome. So, Governor, you served as a state senator from 1995 to 2015, which means you were a senator when the 2001 No Child Left Behind Act was passed. Then later, President Obama's Race to the Top program. So most of the folks that I run with see No Child Left Behind, a race to the top as the dark days of public education. And some educators talk about it in terms of PTSD and the death of creativity and innovation in teaching and learning. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that. And what was it like being in the state Senate as that was happening? I wonder what was on your mind.
1: I certainly was happy that I wasn't chairing the education committee during that time. (laughs) I can imagine. Um, You know, you go back a decade before that, and, uh, you know, Josh, I wrote the first charter law in Hawaii. I had done two omnibus education. I created that whole notion that we needed to look comprehensively at at the school system and try to make structural changes in order to enable it to be as successful as possible. So, you know, I wrote the charter school law on the notion that schools should beg for forgiveness and have the opportunity to implement innovative programs without having to get approval prior. You know, we had encouraged all schools to set up their own schedule. We had asked them to take responsibility. Every community because we did want communities involved. We asked every community to take responsibility for their education. We asked every student to be willing to understand that they have a stake in it and they should have a role in what they are learning and what they're doing. So I just saw... No Child Left Behind, as just a huge step backward. You know, I I got it, right? In 1980, in fact. And, you know, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of Western Governors University. And Roy Romer, and I forgot the governor from Utah, but were instrumental in trying to create a new paradigm and not be so focused on seat time and time in the classroom and really focus on criteria-based or assessment-based kind of coursework and ensuring that the focus is on the student and, and what the needs are. So I really felt that No Child Left Behind was just a huge step backwards, race to the top, just perpetuated it. It absolved the states of really making decisions, and the federal government believed, and I don't know why they got into that belief that they could do like other developing countries and just you know, establish the curriculum and expect everybody to fall in line in exactly the same way, Mm. which really did not make any sense. Mm. And one other thing that I just had a huge problem with was the high-stakes evaluation of teachers during that time and, you know, the whole notion that we created such a bureaucratic apparatus to evaluate teachers. And, you know, when you talk with the principals, they knew who the good teachers were and who the bad teachers were. And this expensive, bureaucratic, high-stakes evaluation resulted in less teachers being identified as problematic teachers than prior. Because now it impacted people's lives you know and human nature is that if i'm if my evaluation of a person means that they may lose their job or they'll not get their pay raise yeah. it is fundamentally hard to do that to another individual and we saw that so we turned the school upside down to focus on race to the top and and no child left behind Everybody looked the same. Yeah. And this high-stakes evaluation, you know, which I think was wrong on every front. Right. And so I'm just glad for every student succeeds passing before or about the same time I became governor Mm. and having the opportunity to step back from No Child Left Behind and race to the top. I actually had the opportunity to
0: take a group of students to Washington And then the teachers were able to peel off and do things that they wanted to do. And so I was in the room during a markup session watching Senator Kennedy go through and lead a markup session on No Child Left Behind. And I remember really clearly a sense of dread as a teacher. I was just like, oh, this is not going to go well, especially for the teachers themselves. So we'll come back to ESSA in a moment. But there's an in-between point along the timeline that I'm interested in. So... I found it super interesting that Hawaii had appointed members of the Board of Education up until 1966, and then switched back to an elected board for decades, and then switched again by constitutional amendment in 2010 to an appointed board. So you succeeded Governor Abercrombie eight years ago, but he had already appointed some members. So what are your thoughts about appointed versus elected boards, and what has been your process in appointing members of the board of education in other words in what ways do your powers of appointment signal a governor's vision for what education could be
1: thanks for that question josh you know I actually supported the constitutional amendment that created the appointed Board of Education. And it was with some reluctance, but also a belief that our process to elect Board of Education members just was not well designed. Uh, You know, overwhelmingly, every single election, blank votes won. Yeah. You know, the even the leading candidates for the Board of Education rarely got 20% of the vote. So, you know, I've always felt that public education is the most important function of state government. And Hawaii is different because the state does run the education system. And it just seemed absurd to me that it was under the direction of an elected board where blanks overwhelmed everything, and the leading vote-getters got, you know, very, very small plurality of votes. So I did support the appointed board, and as I looked at board appointments, you know, I was focused on those that shared the core values as I looked at education. You know, first and foremost, I really wanted to see people appointed who had— skin in the game. I was looking for interested business and community members that had their kids in public school. Yeah. You know, it, it always bothered me that the overwhelming majority of the previous appointed boards were, they never got close to a public school. Yeah. And yet they're making decisions about, you know, curriculum and priorities and everything like that. So, you know, I was looking for community members that were committed and had their children in public schools. Mm. Also, as an appointed board, you get to think about what perspectives are important to be on the board and look for people with those backgrounds to help serve and shape The Board of Education. So I did want to see educators on the board because that's important. I wanted to have someone with finance background because understanding the budgets and the budget process and fiscal priorities was a very important part. I did want to find members who supported innovation and the whole notion that we want schools whose curriculum are place-based and student-focused, right? The notion of getting around the one-size-fits-all and really understanding that if communities and schools don't take responsibility for education, you know, the world is changing too fast, right? I mean, that's the whole notion. Age of acceleration. Yes, uh, that's... uh, You know, and remember... That was identified in 1980, mid-80s about, you know, that the pace of change is happening faster and faster and faster. And the one-size-fits-all never works because if the federal government is going to tell us what our public schools should be doing or teaching, there's just no way that they can make changes in curriculum or standards as quickly as changes are happening in our community, right. And
0: I did notice I, I read, well, first of all, I read some of the testimony against the switch back to an appointed board, and some of it was pretty fierce. Yeah, but I understood it because that had been a system for decades, and people were very comfortable with the way that they had moved that forward. And then also, I noted that because Hawaii has such a large military community, that appointments that honor the fact that there is a large military community, meaning that there's a member of the board who actually comes from that community and understands what that community needs and so on. So it's it's a remarkable thing when you really look at it.
1: Yes. And, you know, and I tried to in my appointments, you know, I wanted... Hawaiian language immersion Mm. uh, and charter schools were very important. So being able to find a board member who is deeply and heavily involved in Hawaiian language immersion and even better yet, as we identified public pre-K as a priority, you know, Hawaiian language immersion preschool person was really important. You know, so just looking at and thinking about the perspectives and skills that would help the board be more successful. With an appointed board, I certainly can seek community members who are committed to public education that have those skills and build a board that I think can function in the best way possible for the community. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. So, Governor, one more question before we take a break. So now we move towards ESSA, right? So the Every Student Succeeds Act was passed by Congress in December of 2015. And it moved a significant, and you've already alluded to this already, a significant amount of authority to the states to determine their own public education pathway. And you had only recently become governor of the state of Hawaii, and you were quickly in the driver's seat in terms of Hawaii's education autonomy. What a remarkable moment for you. I could just only imagine, and especially given your passion for education. So I think our listeners would be interested in knowing about your forming of the ESA Commission, its all-island listening tour, and the resulting governor's blueprint for education.
1: Thanks for that question. You know, as you had mentioned, Josh, the stars aligned in that regard. You know, I elected was at my very first National Governors Association meeting when the new law was just passed. I had the opportunity to meet Senator Lamar Alexander, and he's a Republican. But this was really before the, the real partisan gridlock happened. So I had the opportunity to talk with him about ESSA and he felt the same way. And, you know, I do remember Lamar Alexander being very involved in education reform in Tennessee. Right. Uh, You know, he was another one of those governors who really embraced the notion of that one size doesn't fit all. Right. Um, And so it was great to see that. And so... We decided that we were going to take this opportunity and really do it in the best way possible. You know, he had talked about community engagement in the process, and I had been very involved in community engagement. When I became the house chair on education back in nine, early 90s, 92, 93 timeframe, I went on a listening tour and had 30, 40, 50 community meetings to talk about education. This was in the early 1990s, when Goals 2000 was the big you know, benchmark about the transformation of education. And I really felt that we had not done that exercise of really getting into the community and listening. And so I committed to uh, doing that. I put together an advisory committee of people that were committed to public education.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, There were uh, 19 people on that committee. Yes, Yes.
1: absolutely. Mm -hmm. And all stakeholders, because I felt that it was very important. And we went on a listening tour once again to Mm -hmm. talk about education and what worked and what didn't work and what the concerns were. And we had committed to having a summit at the end of that time you know, and we had more than a thousand people show up yep. on a weekend to really put the finishing touches on the issues that were important, the things that worked and the things that weren't working, mm-hmm. and generated the blueprint for Hawaii's education.
0: And I've been told that you attended those commission meetings as they went about their listening tour, that you were there on those Saturdays. Yes. You spent those hours with I didn't,
1: them. I wasn't at all of them, but I did attend a good number of them. I, I felt that it was important. You know, a lot of what I heard, I had heard in my previous listening tour back in the early 1990s, you know, right. that the concerns were still the same, mm-hmm. uh, which I felt terrible about, but... Mm. Yeah. there's a there's a great
0: quote in the blueprint from Lamar Alexander, Senator Alexander about how when you open the doors to autonomy, you open the doors to great leaps forward in terms of innovation and creativity. And I just think it's remarkable that there were a small group of people who were working at that time within the context of that idea Mm -hmm. and that coming out of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, this was a dramatic shift in the other direction. And I just think that it must have been a very remarkable thing for you to be in the seat at that moment, right? Is that, is that Abs- a that statement? Absolutely.
1: Thing? Like I said, I felt glad that I wasn't chair of the education committee when No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top was passed because I could not see how it would work. Yeah. And for the Every Student Succeeds Act to be passed as I became governor was certainly an opportunity that I couldn't pass up to yeah. to change the dynamic and really take it back to the community so that you know it was I heard the frustration in those meetings because at the same time that no child left behind and race to the top was being implemented we were struggling from the budget so the schools were being asked to change everything they do, get on one schedule, you know, just follow our orders at a time when the budget was shrinking. So I heard over and over again in the communities that why are these mandates, centralized mandates being forced on us with no resources? You know, they felt like they were left holding the bag, you know, that somebody else decided that these changes needed to be made. And by the way, we're not going to give you the money to implement it. So you got to cut things that are working, right, at your schools and redirect it into these changes. And clearly... The community did not want to see that continue. It came out loud and clear, no more unfunded mandates. And this was from the state. You know, I guess the federal government was ordering these changes, but, you know, the states were left with implementing, and it certainly was a very, very tough time. That's great.
0: So, everybody, stay with us. We'll be back with more questions for Governor David Ige in just a moment.
1: Hi fellow educators, I'm Steve Shapiro, and
0: like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from Entre Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be Educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, we're back with Governor David Ige. So Governor, Hawaii has experienced, I'm sure, like many states, the roller coaster ride that is policymakers moving towards centralization and then decentralization of our public schools. And so for years now, Hawaii's public schools have been on a path towards honoring place and culture in learning in a regional context. So as you finish your work as governor here in these last few, weeks what is your vision for how education can be less standardized and you've sort of talked about this already but more unique from place to place in the Hawaiian Islands like how do we move from these mandates that everybody still talks about now they're still pretty intense um, and the and the compliance mindset that goes with that to the explosion of creativity that comes when somebody on on an educator on Kauai or an educator on Lanai or Molokai really comes up with an idea and wants to move with it. How do we move in that direction now? And in the context of you departing the office
1: of governor? Yeah, certainly we see and know that that's the best opportunity for our children. Yeah. For place-based, project-based, real learning to occur gives us the best opportunity to ensuring a child's success forever. Yeah, And so we certainly, and I've been emphasizing with the board members that I've been able to appoint, and we have a brand new superintendent on top of everything. So it's a great opportunity. And I do see an acceleration of that. You know, Superintendent Hayashi was one of those innovators at the school level. And it was amazing to work with him. He is student-focused, always thinking about what is in the best interest of the student, working with the community to identify the needs within the community, looking for partnerships so that there are real-life opportunities for internships for the students and really be, being willing to say i don't want my school to limit the horizons of the students and being able to see success in what they view as their dreams right. you know and i'm excited and supportive of keith ayashi as superintendent because he really has lived that innovation you know I really do believe that early college is a great opportunity it's the great equalizer it gives me great hope that we will be successful in making public schools first choice again here in the state of Hawaii and that whole place-based innovation is part of that you know, we did get governor's emergency education of funds, gear funds from the federal government as part of the Rescue Act. And we wanted to be focused on how can we help accelerate and support innovation. So we did want to do it differently. You know, and the First Lady, Dawn, has been an educator for many years, and she really wanted... To be involved, she's involved with Ka'u Dream, which got a Gears grant, yeah. and is really focused on exactly what you talked about. Right. They were looking at place-based curriculum and looking at the needs of the community, and it's basically agriculture. But agriculture today is not agriculture that it was 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know, it's about drones and it's about soil samples and it's, you know, very, very different vertical farming. Agriculture is now high tech or else the world will collapse. Yeah. And so to be able to have at least some funds that we could channel into And making opportunities available for schools and community to really, you know, have the resources to pursue something different was really important.
0: Right. So, actually, I was at an event last night called Spark and Inspire, and I learned for the first time because I was seated with a gentleman who's part of a credit union system here in Hawaii, that Keith has had a 30-year partnership with a credit union and that the credit union opened on campus and that the students run the credit union. And now they're actually taking it in a new direction, which is using the credit union as a way to teach financial literacy to young people, which I was just like, oh my, that's great. And so I'm excited about the idea that Keith is the superintendent. And that that mindset that he brings, which is regional innovation, will be part of what he does. And we'll come back to the GEAR grant in just a second. We'll go a little bit deeper on that. So I want to dig a little bit more deeply into exactly what happened with the GEAR grant, with the pandemic fund. So your office has received millions of dollars in, in COVID relief funds from the federal government, which, and I'm putting it simply here, it's a very complex thing you've made available to schools and educators via something called what you refer to as the gear grants, right? Mm -hmm. So again, you put together a committee that developed a process for applying for these funds. And in the end, 31 teams were given funds to build and grow programs and initiatives. So what did you hope would be the result of providing these innovation funds to Hawaii's educators and their partners? Like what was the vision that came into your mind as you realized that the federal government was going to be channeling these funds, but they were restricted to educational purposes.
1: Right. What I was fully aware of in the broadest sense, the federal government was providing funds in a wide array of areas in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and we were getting funds for testing and we were getting funds for vaccinations. They were supporting hospitals. They were supporting small businesses. We were providing enhanced benefits for unemployed. I mean, so there were a lot of people and the public school system directly got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for the public school dealing with testing and masking and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, the knee-jerk reaction would have been to use these monies to fund personal protective equipment and air filters and a whole bunch of those kinds of things that were eligible from the other pots of money. Right. And so I really wanted to make sure that we would focus the funds that I had total control over in the governor's office to really support innovation and to support the culture of innovation in a way that there weren't other pots of money. Right. And Josh, you know, it was a tough time for public servants all across the state. Indeed. Every organization in the state had been turned upside down by COVID. Everything that they did, they had to do differently because we had an infectious disease that was transmitted face to face and 99% of government activity used to be face-to-face and had to be changed. So how do we structure a program that doesn't add to the burdens right. that our public servants at the public schools were dealing with? At the same time, how can it be effective in the long term to support innovation? And and that was the focus that we took. You know, we had this advisory committee, you know, we talked about air purifiers and and all of those things. And I think it was pretty unanimous that we did want to support innovation and we wanted to get it to the school level as best as we could because we knew that that's where the action is. That would be the best opportunity to encourage innovative investments in education that, that we wanted to see perpetuate um, moving forward.
0: I think one of the things that our listeners need to understand is that you can't just wave your magic wand and get an innovator's culture or an, an, an innovation culture, that it really does take investment. And then you have to allow people the opportunity or sponsor them, if you will, to move forward with their innovations and their creative work that they're going to do. And then over time, you actually get a culture of innovation. And I'm remarked by the idea that this kind of goes back to the ESSA Commission. Yes. In the sense that what the ESSA Commission was gathering up from the community over these hundreds of meetings and thousands of people, 3,000 people attending all those meetings, was that there is a strong desire in the state of Hawaii for innovation and that people want to see that happen and they want to see the public schools play an outsized role in that and that that's what was coming through as you went through the process of of preparing these relief funds to be available to educators is that a fair way of looking at it
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, it was an extension very much of the work that led to the blueprint. We heard that communities wanted to be responsible for the learning in, the, in their communities, and they wanted it to be relevant to their community. Right. And so that was clearly, and they didn't want to be forced to do it, right? They wanted to be given the opportunity by being able to get access to resources that would allow them to implement some of the ideas that they had. So yeah. that was kind of the focus of the grant program and it came through loud and clear that there was a need for professional development. Absolutely. You know, we had gone from virtually zero virtual learning to 100% virtual learning and and then we're back to living with COVID. So what is the appropriate level or optimum level of virtual learning that should be occurring in our public schools? We still know for the most part, the overwhelming majority of students need face-to-face opportunities with teachers, but how does all of those pieces fit as we learn to live with COVID and learn with to live with infectious diseases.
0: Right, I had the privilege of serving as one of the evaluators of the applications Mm. as they were coming in and wow, it was remarkable. When you give people a rope, you know, they start climbing. And that's what it felt like as I was reading through those applications. So speaking of, you took a look at one GEAR grant recipient in advance of today's conversation. So that application was put in by Jackie Freitas, who I just interviewed for this podcast. And that episode will come out actually in a couple of days. She's a young natural resources and agriculture teacher at Lelehua High School. So Jackie and her school and her many partners are beginning the work of moving Hawaii from unsustainable pineapple and sugarcane production to a more diversified, as you mentioned, organic and ag tech-centered approach. And the students, is so interesting, you know, as I interviewed her, they don't necessarily want to be in the dirt hoeing, you know, using the hoe and digging weeds, right? These kids are different these days. So they're right at the center of learning these ag tech skills like flying drones and programming farm bots and learning the mechanics, the engineering of vertical farming and so on and so forth, right? So as an engineer by training, this must put fuel in your tank, <laughs> right? And and where did your mind go as you were reviewing that particular application and just thinking about your work as governor Because part of that work is thinking about the future of agriculture in Hawaii.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have been looking at, and it's pretty basic economics, right, Josh? We know that the more self-reliant we can be, the quicker we stop sending our dollars out of the state to create jobs someplace else, and the quicker we create jobs here in Hawaii. And I've worked with many farmers. Uh, you know, one of my goals for sustainable Hawaii is doubling local food production. Yeah. And so I've talked with many farmers and they are definitely concerned that being a farmer in the traditional sense is very hard. You know, even their family members are not interested oftentimes in continuing to do and run the farm in the same way that it used to be. Right. So we know that in order for us to get to be 100% sustainable when it comes to food production, we definitely can't do it the same old way that we've been doing it. It really does require us to look at the best science that we have in vertical farming. And we know that you can virtually grow anything anywhere with the latest technology and processes and procedures. But we don't have a whole lot of people who understand that in our community. So it's exciting to see the proposal from Lailahua where we want to get students to think about what that looks like and how, you know, be able to get the opportunity to implement and learn and think about agriculture in a very different way. Because if we try to implement agriculture as we know it 10 years ago, it won't work. We won't get to be 100% self-sustaining in agriculture. We definitely need to take the best techniques and knowledge that we have in the world and be able to transition that to Hawaii. And it's exciting. We do know that There are many in our community that embrace the goals of sustainable Hawaii, and it's exciting that the students and the teachers, the educators, are really wanting to fill that gap and and think and explore. Students can, once again, get hands-on, place-based opportunities to learn and be able to hit the ground running, knowing that they picked up some of these skills and the knowledge during their public school days to really carry them forward.
0: Right. And I'll be able to describe for our listeners before we go to break right here. I I encourage listeners to listen to that episode with Jackie because it's really an amazing story. But one of the things that she shared with me was that the GEAR funds allowed for a pandemic pivot, which meant that where she was growing outdoors in the sun, and also she lost her labor because everybody was locked down, she was able to switch to a pretty large operation that was indoors, solar powered, and immediately begin production of produce that was actually being provided for the community to help them weather the pandemic. And I was just like, ah, that's what innovation does. It gives people with an innovators mindset the opportunity to run, but also in this case, the students were involved in how that all got constructed. And who knows, maybe governor, there's an engineer in one of those students that they may not necessarily go into agriculture, but they're carrying skill sets with them as they go forward, we call them transferable skills. That's awesome. So everybody stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Governor David Eke. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Arianna Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. Mahalo. Hey, everybody, we're back with Governor Ige, who is in his final months as the governor of the state of Hawaii. So, Governor, it's a sure bet that members of these 31 teams that we've been talking about will hear this episode as they prepare for their October 8th, 2022 End of your showcase at the Hawaii Convention Center. So let's say this is a, a mini keynote moment. What is your message to these folks who've been working so hard to innovate this past
1: year? I just want to personally thank them for taking that chance, you know, for applying for the grants, for thinking about innovative ways that they can better serve their students and provide better learning opportunities. I applaud your courage in putting out your best ideas, you know, and I know that maybe not all of the projects really worked out in the best way that you thought, but I just want to assure you that I appreciate every effort I know that all the dollars that went to schools as part of the GEAR grants were well spent, that the intention and focus was to really give our students an innovative approach to learning that will benefit our community for many, many years because the educators were willing to take a chance. And I do think that that is important it doesn't happen often enough in Indeed. our public school system yeah and I know that the students will learn even from the projects that may not have gone as designed but that's what it means to be an innovator you know it is about thinking about what work and then doing it and then refining and making it better every opportunity you have. So just really want to thank everyone for all of their efforts, especially during this time of COVID when I know that it's not back to normal yet. Right. You know, that there's still a lot of COVID protocols that are in place and certainly a lot of anxiety in our communities. So I just want to express my appreciation to everyone for all the work.
0: And I'll share with our listeners that I think there's a mindset out there that when you talk about innovation, somehow people think gadgets or they think that things that are being made. But in fact, some of the really interesting stuff that was happening within the GEAR grant program was not at all about gadgets. So, for example, I did an episode with Dr. Julie Maurer, who's the director of community engagement at University of Hawaii at Hilo. And she developed a leadership program, which is four years for six kids. And I just thought, wow, these are the kids of the future. They're the ones who are going to be inheriting the seat that you're about to leave. So it's important for our listeners to understand that these GEAR programs span a broad range of innovative approaches that included collaboration with the community, partnerships within the community. And I think it's important for people to know about this because it really helps us to understand ourselves as a state, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important for everyone to understand that the best public education system moving forward has to be grounded in the communities, in the land of the school, and the communities that they serve. And the best learning will occur when curriculum is structured in a way that the students are really engaged in relevant issues to their community. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the best learning. That's the best opportunity for our students to really gain the life skills that they'll need to be successful in the future.
0: And to thrive. Absolutely. So, Governor, a few more questions before we bring this awesome conversation to a close. So, I have surveyed a lot of folks in the business and nonprofit startup and venture communities, and they all have strong opinions about what skills and habits and dispositions young people need as they apply for jobs and take on business leadership roles. Many of them think our public schools have not, often been able to produce the kinds of kids that they think need to be produced. And many of them think that there's too much emphasis, as you've noted before, on GPA and content acquisition and and standardization of education, and not enough emphasis on the durable skills, like, for example, young Jackie Freitas is developing in her kids. So my question is, and from your perch as governor, how do these competing visions and need sets find common ground like who does the mediating who is best situated to bring people together to bring all the sectors together so that kids can thrive and succeed
1: i really do believe it's about leadership josh and leadership at the school level is most important obviously the bureaucracy needs to be committed to that culture of community engagement and innovation at the school level they need to be able to support the system needs to be able to support the innovators at the school level right because that's where the action occurs right yeah, that's the only is. you can't get community engagement from the state office right right so i think that it's really important that the system be able to support innovators, but it's really important for the principals and uh, the leadership, the educators at the school level, that really believes one that they can take a new idea and get support for it. You know, it does take resources right. in order to implement something new. And you know, you talked about Waipao High School, and I spent a lot of time at talking with Waipao High School, but, you know, they are so student focused that the faculty and everyone at that campus that as these new ideas come up, they are willing to take it on and write grants and try to get the resources to implement it. And it shouldn't be that hard, you know. I mean, I think what we try to do in GEARS is make resources available so that those innovators can get access to it in a simple way. And it, we don't require them to put together a dissertation to get it, yeah. you know, and then we recognize that maybe not all of them will be as successful as they think they will be, but it's really important to be able to to support the innovation process so that they don't get discouraged. And I think that that is something that's really important.
0: Right. And at the same time, governor, and this is partly your legacy, I think, is that if it is coming from the state level, please make sure that you've surveyed the community before you act, right? Absolutely. That anything that just comes directly from the top without any sense from the community that their input has been offered. And it seems like you've done that repeatedly over the course of your, not only your your time as a governor, but even before your time as a governor, that that the state has an obligation to find out what the community wants and needs, and then to act on that. Except in certain situations where decisive, you talk about decision sciences, right? Where certain decisions have to be made like, you know, in in a pandemic or something like that.
1: Absolutely. And we do know that we need to do a better job of connecting the dots. You know, the whole focus on career pathways, not only higher education degrees, but also short-term certificates. And, you know, we do want to work with the community to identify career opportunities for our young people and invite them to make learning experiences available for students in internships and other kinds of things and really share with us the skills that are required for employees to be successful. You know, all across all industries in the state of Hawaii, I think people are recognizing that the best employees are those that come from our community because they are the most committed to being successful in this community. When we have to import workers, they're here on vacation for a period of time, and then they intend to leave. And that really doesn't help us because that gap in skills that our community needs becomes an ongoing gap over and over and over again till we can make sure someone resident in our community has the skills and knowledge and capability to do these jobs because we know that they will stay. They want to have a career. They want to earn a decent wage. They want to have the opportunity to start their family here and have a future for their kids. I think that that's what our community wants.
0: So, Governor, that's a perfect segue to the second to the last question, and it comes back to what you were just talking about here. And I I recognize that this is a hard, hard question. Maybe it'll strike close to home because you have three kids, Lauren, Amy, and Matthew. There is an argument out there that because Hawaii has such a college-at-all-costs mentality— And such a high percentage of kids attend private schools where it's almost automatic that you're going to go to college and likely that college will be outside the state of Hawaii. That Hawaii's biggest and most important export is our kids, which is a huge loss to the state. So what are your thoughts about this in terms of that mentality? And if you were another four years of of governor ahead of you, which I know you'd probably not want, what would you be thinking about in terms of this conversation?
1: You know, I am really excited about the prospects, and I'll tell you why, Josh. Every single organization on the planet learned how to deal with telework. Yes. You know, and so I think many organizations found that they almost every single organization has human resource as a constraint to being successful. Right. Right? Whether it's a volunteer organization, a not-for-profit organization, or a for-profit, everybody's having a challenge getting people. And so I'm excited about the future because every organization has come to realize that they don't have to live in my community to work for my company. Right, And that cuts both ways, right? It gives me hope because at least two of my three children for the last two and a half, three years were teleworking and they could telework from anywhere in the country for the companies that they work for. And their companies learned that it's okay that teleworking individuals can be as productive as having them here. So I'm excited that for the first time, employers, are comfortable with workers not living in their communities and employees are comfortable working for companies that don't physically be. So I view this opportunity as as all of our young people have every opportunity to pursue a career of their choosing for virtually any employer and most of them have had the experience of having a teleworker and so they can pursue that i you know my oldest daughter lauren is an attorney and she works for a big uh, east coast law firm and everybody was teleworking and i'm excited because one of the associates in her firm actually came home to hawaii and was working for this washington dc law firm out of hawaii for much of the pandemic right you know and that happened many times over. So I think that what we need to embrace is how do we continue that telework outreach. I think all of the organizations are trying to find what's the optimum mix of in-person work and telework. And how do you create a corporate culture? and belief system within your organization that includes both in-person workers and teleworkers? And how do you create that coherent, consistent corporate culture that can allow you to be successful? And I'm just optimistic, Mm. Josh, because I do know that the one thing people of Hawaii get, and every student graduates with it, is that notion that we is bigger than me. You know, I was proud to be able to host the world champion Little League Baseball at the Washington Place. And it's amazing because the focus was on team success rather than individual success. Right. You know, and we know that. We hear that from the, the employers. It's about collaboration. It's about being able to work with others and working with people from very diverse backgrounds. You know, all of those are so essential skills as we move forward. And we get that naturally in our communities. So I'm very excited about the future. I do think that there's more opportunities now for even bringing my own children. And because they've all experienced teleworking, they know that they can live anywhere As long as they have skills that are in high demand,
0: which is which is where I would get up on my soapbox and say to our public schools and and the leaders and the principals, and the educators is if that's the case, and I, I love your optimism, but our public schools have to step up and help our kids be trained in how to exist in those kind and thrive in those kinds of environments.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So. Okay. So, Governor, last question. Thank you for this time today, but I wanted to make sure that I got to this final question here. I've become concerned, wary maybe, of how many education conversations are happening around the hashtag future ready. Everyone is talking about kids being hashtag future ready now, but that is such a passive position. Like my daughter, Emma, and your daughter, Lauren, for example, might be future ready. But the climate change freight train is going to run right over them no matter what, no matter how future ready they might be. So I wonder how the state of Hawaii can gear up and train a series of generations of kids to shape the future rather than just passively be hashtag future ready. What has to happen for this to happen and and maybe bring your engineer's mind to bear on this challenge?
1: I do see a lot of activities that makes me optimistic about the future, Josh. And, you know, we see educators and schools being very focused on place-based and community-focused curriculum changes. I see a great acceleration in the youth in our community and around the country and around the world about learning that they know that their voice matters. And most importantly, the new digital world that we all live in gives everyone a voice. Every voice can be heard because of the digital platform that everyone has access to. So we see youth not being satisfying. Yeah for what everybody thinks they should be doing, really stepping up and taking responsibility and not letting those who have the authority and power to make decisions to be accountable for Mm. what they do. Mm. You know, and we've seen it in climate change. Greta Thunberg really ignited when everybody who actually had the authority and power was interested in not making a commitment. She challenged them, how dare you for my future, you not be willing to make that commitment. And over and over and over again, we see young people recognizing that their voice matters, and they understand the tools of the digital future, and they are getting engaged. So I do see that confluence of activities. I do see educators understanding that place matters and community matters. I can see them engaging the broader community to give our young people glimpses of what those careers might be, wanting to work with businesses and community organizations, challenging them to make opportunities available for students so they can work on real community-based challenges and find success. And and then seeing that young leaders are really understanding, who understand the digital platforms and media, mm. understanding that they can be impatient and they can challenge adults to accelerate their activities or being uh, held accountable for them. Right. So I, you know, I am very optimistic. I mean, I we see how rapid the U.S. and the world has caught up to Hawaii in our climate action agenda. Right. And I can only see that acceleration happening in many, many other areas. And I do think that our public schools that our young students are really at the tip of that spear and really already shaping the public schools, moving into the future. Right. And our students are embracing the challenge and the opportunity in a way that is respectful and helps to move our communities forward. Well, wow,
0: Governor, so loud and clear, listeners, you got to hear what he's just said. And that is that if you want kids to shape the future, you have to help them continue to develop their voice because it's their voices that are going to shape how the future unfolds for us. Governor, I did an episode with Kekoa Pegram, who's a proud Waipahu graduate. He's been maybe more active than any young person in the state of Hawaii in helping us understand what the climate crisis is. And he's organized marches. That episode was remarkable for me to learn what students are doing in terms of exercising their voice and also hearing that the platforms already exist for them to be able. So we just need to help them to shape their voices in a way that's productive and that helps us move forward as a community. So I think that's a a great way to end this conversation. So, Governor David Ige, thank you for this time today. I really appreciate it, and we're looking forward to having this episode be released, and we hope that listeners outside of the state of Hawaii will take inspiration from what we're doing here and understand our challenges as well and work with us as we move forward to make the world a better place. Thank you, Governor.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music and musical interludes come from the vast catalogue of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over hundred songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Friends, these are uncertain and challenging times. The headlines, especially around education, can be relentlessly negative. Please bring kindness, compassion, innovation, creativity, and imagination into the world. We need a surplus of all of these right now. Until the next episode, ahuiho and take care.